Welcome. This is In the Studio with Michael Card. A bit of an unusual opening to the program today, Michael, because uh, I called you on Skype. It's so immediate that we talk here today. It's so important that we talk that I, I want to yeah. call you. It's, it's, it's so odd to be looking at you guys on the phone and talking instead of being there in the studio. It's a I'll never get used to this. Yeah. I will well, never get used to this, but it's better than nothing. We're going to go to the archive here today, and uh, I'll explain everything that's coming up on the program. But the reason I called you um, is the immediacy here. Our dear, dear friend Ravi Zacharias has passed away, and uh, yeah. we all admire the man so much. I just want to chat with you for, for a moment about him. Yeah, it, it's a, it really is an odd mixture of being so sad and being uh, happy yes. for him. Yes, yes. And, uh, and I, I don't think I'm, um, I don't know, I'm being sentimental or anything, but trying to imagine the kind of reception and the kind of relief he must have, you know, experienced to see the Lord's face. I don't yeah. know. Um, yeah. He doesn't walk by faith now. He walks by sight, right? Yeah. And he, he, was, he was a person who was so encouraging. And um, I don't think we, it's kind of like when we talk about Aretha Franklin or people like that. We're not going to have another Ravi Zacharias. You only get one of him. Right. Right. There's certain other people. We have multiple copies of them waiting. Right. right? There's right. lots of Mike. There's lots of Mike cards kind of waiting in the shoot. But we've only got. We'll only have one Ravi Zacharias, and so we should celebrate that. Well said. I wanted to point that out because we are going to to the archive here in a few moments, and we're going to hear yeah. from Ravi a conversation we had with him looking back on 9-11. It was just a couple mm. of years after 9-11 when we recorded that. So our listeners will hear that in just a moment. And they'll also hear uh, you talking from uh, Luke chapter 13 and teaching from Luke 13 today. So that's coming up. And then Lyle Dorsett will join us later. Uh, it's yeah. always a, always special. And this uh, this upcoming program, again, from the archive today. But this, this conversation to begin with here today, I wanted to touch base with you while I had the chance because not only do you have a book which has just come out, or it's coming out in November, I guess, right? Comes out in November, right. Okay, uh-huh. but you're also working on a new book. Yeah, and, and they're both about the life of Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right, so, uh, so I, I'm watching you on Skype right now, and I, yeah. I don't see a stack of books behind you, but I'm sure you've oh. read a whole bunch, right? Well, would you like to see the stack of books there? There's See that bookcase? Okay, all right. There's 47 books on the life of Jesus in that bookcase. So you're doing the research right now. I've read all those books, and I'm now transferring all the ideas into the outline. Uh huh. Yeah, mm-hmm. my outline has it, it. They're A, B, C, D, E. There's five major sections, and each one has about thirty or forty subsections. So it's it's going to be uh, a lot of work, but okay. I'm looking forward to it. I've learned so much about Jesus in his world, and how many languages he spoke, and that sort of thing. So, what's the title of the book coming out in November? Uh, it's called uh, The Nazarene, A Lyrical Life. It's essays from 40 songs on the life of Jesus. All right. And, of course, it's too early to know the title of the book you're working on right now, but we'll yeah, look for that in the future. Yeah, and that's driving me crazy, too. <laughs> I can't think of a title. Okay. All the right. The subtitle is, wait, let me look at my whiteboard. Yeah, the subtitle is uh, Resources for Engaging with the Life of Jesus. There's all kinds of lists from his life. Uh, how many Sabbath violations did he have? Oh, how many healings? What did he say before? How, how did people respond to him? I've got all kinds of stuff. So it's, it's interesting. Well, I can't wait to read both of them, Mike. I really can't. But I want to touch base with you today to open this program that's largely coming from the archive. And yeah. we're going to go to that pre-recorded program now. But thanks for the connection. Glad to know you're doing yeah. okay. Yeah, and let's, and let's really give thanks today for uh, Ravi Zacharias and the gift he was to the church. Amen. Well, let's begin, Mike, with your song recorded in the studio, titled, What Will It Take to Keep You from Jesus? And your friend Kirk Whalem accompanies you on the sax in this recording. Yeah, I'm so looking forward to hearing him play again. What will it take to keep you from Jesus, keep you from heeding his call? The simple excuse of a heart that is hard A reason that's nothing at all And there was a man who was owned by his money He was as rich as could be But deep in his heart was a voice that was crying Telling him he wasn't free When he questioned the master concerning his problem, the answer took his breath away. 
money had come to me more than his soul forever would stand in his way. What will it take to keep you from Jesus, keep you from heeding his call? The simple excuse of a heart that is hard, a reason that's nothing at all. And how long before you stop with your reasons, take your defenses that keeps you from following don't let it stand in your way so many excuses and so many lies are blocking the light and the way but the final decision to follow the Lord will shatter and blow them away about Jesus, he knew that he longed to be whole. So with some of his friends he went seeking and found him, so many stood in their way. So they tore through the roof and they lowered him down, for nothing could keep him away. What will it take to keep you from Jesus, keep you from heeding his call? The simple excuse of a heart that is hard, a reason that's nothing at all. Kirk Whalem there trailing off with yeah. a saxophone here in the studio. Let's um, let's think about 9-11. Mm-hmm. And I know you want to turn to Luke chapter 13 yeah. as we... And by the way, that last song does what you do so well. You take an incident of scripture and you kind of set it to music, bring right. it to life, and then make the application to us. Right. Yeah. And, and that's a great question. What, what will it take to keep you from Jesus? Mm-hmm. Because uh, we have those two great examples. You've got the rich man who, who couldn't let go of his money. And then you have, uh, you know, the, the beggar who nothing, you know, they'll tear, tear a hole through the floor. I mean, the, the, actually the, 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 the friends who bring their uh, crippled friend on the stretcher to Peter's house in Capernaum, nothing would keep him away from Jesus. He tore a hole in the roof to get <laughs> yeah, to him. So think about that. the question is, what's it going to take to keep you from Jesus? Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Luke chapter 13. Uh, about this time, Jesus was informed that Pilate had murdered some people from Galilee as they were sacrificing at the temple in Jerusalem. Right. Jesus said, do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than the other people from Galilee, he asked? Is that why they suffered? Hmm. Not at all. And you will also perish unless you turn from your evil ways and turn to God. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is, um, you know, first of all, established that this is Luke, you know, who is a companion of Paul, who has a unique perspective on the ministry of Jesus. and I think this is this is one of those unique stories that Luke has in mind. Luke is a was a slave. He was a doctor. He was a Gentile, responsible for more of the writing more than New Testament than even Paul. Uh, Luke acts together is longer than all of Paul's letters. So this significant word, obviously, from this companion of Paul. And Jesus has been in the previous chapter. He has been talking about judgment, and. Um, you know, the chapter 12 closes with Jesus' statement, uh, you know, you're not going to get out until you've paid the last penny, mm-hmm. talking about the parable of the person who gets thrown into uh, into prison. And so people immediately start thinking of judgment, and and um, and so they ask this story um, about, this is actually a story that we, read, we can read about in Acts 5.37 about Judas the Galilean, and he was caught, he was fomenting a rebellion, and... Uh, Pilate uh, executed him. That's uh, so. That's a historical thing mm-hmm. that uh, Jesus is referring to, and so they ask, you know, well, that must have been God's judgment. Jesus, you've been talking about judgment and how people are going to get punished. 
So this surely that was judgment. This was judgment, and and Jesus goes on to uh, to say, you know, no, there's not this simple connection between sin and uh, and punishment or sin and suffering. Um, certainly. Uh, sin is judged, and and we suffer because of sin. But not ever, not everyone who suffers or has an accident or or gets caught up in a rebellion like this, it's not a necessarily a one on one connection. And that's what Jesus goes on to, to tell another story. Yeah, that, there's an eerie connection to nine eleven in a sense here, isn't there? there? There really is. And as I understand it, they haven't been able to uh, find a, the a, a historical reference outside the Gospels to to this actually happening. But um, Jesus goes on and adds, sort of adds to the uh, confusion. He goes, or those 18, I mean, specific number of these right. people. These He's eight, setting a contemporary event here. Yeah, 18 people who died uh, when, the, uh, when the Tower of Siloam fell on them. Do you think they were more guilty than the others living in Jerusalem? So these people suffer. The crowd thinks, well, they must have been sinners because they're suffering. Uh, the, those Galileans who Pilate executed, oh, well, that must have been because of their sin that they suffered. And Jesus is saying there's not this simple connection, uh, there's not this simple equation that everybody uh, lives by. Because everybody lives by this equation. If I'm good, God blesses me. If I'm bad, God punishes me, right? That's the simple equation. Sure. And that was Job's equation in some sense. That really is the, that's the law. You know, if you keep the law, I'm going to prosper you. If you break the law, I'm going to have to punish you. Verse 5, Jesus says, no, and I tell you again that unless you repent, you also will perish. Right. There, there's, there's more going on, especially in the light of Jesus' ministry having come, Jesus who is going to uh, absorb the, the punishment and the, all the suffering of the world on himself in the cross. And that's what this next parable is about. It's about Jesus who becomes an advocate. Listen to this very next verse. Then he told this parable. See, what's happening is we, we've got a very complex situation uh, Jesus is not going to didactically try to pick it apart, give them three points that all start with the same letter, and you know draw you know draw a, a sketch on you know on a chalkboard somewhere. What does Jesus always do? He tells them a story. So he he says a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he went to look for fruit on it, but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard for three years now. Now isn't that it's significant. For three years now, I've been coming to look for fruit. How long has Jesus' ministry lasted? Mm-hmm. Three years. Three years. It's, it's, so there's a parallel there. I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree, but haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? And here's the picture of Jesus as an advocate and a, as an intercessor. Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year, and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then I'll cut it down. Jesus is uh, is telling us that you know there's more going on behind the story. You know there there are fig trees that get cut down. There mm-hmm. there uh, there are people that get destroyed. What you need to know is behind that story, behind the law, there's there's intercession before the Father that's happening, and that's precisely what we see. That's what's going on now? That's precisely what we see. And what, it's interesting. We see in Job this throne room scene happening. And what does Job say? If only there were an intercessor. If only someone could stand between me and God and lay a hand on us. So I think the upshot of this, and as we apply it to 9-11, is not that simple. Were, were the people who died in, in those buildings, were they worse sinners than anyone else who lived in New York City? Mm-hmm. Certainly not. No. Yeah. We'll talk more about this. As a matter of fact, Robbie Zacharias will join us to oh, talk more yeah, about it yeah. in a moment. But first, another song from you, Michael, in the studio, Will You Not Listen? Parables that must be heard 
Will you not listen? Why won't you listen? God has spoken peace to us. Why will you not listen? He spoke a word of flesh and blood, flesh and blood that bled and died, bled and died just to be heard. How could you not hear this word? Why will you not hear this word? Will you not listen? Why won't you listen? God has spoken hope to us. How could you not listen? Why will you not listen? Michael Card here at the piano in the studio. And Michael, if you're turned now, let's uh, bring on the line with us our friend Ravi Zacharias. It's been a while, hasn't it? Yes, greetings, Ravi. Greetings to you, Michael. So nice to be with you. Thank you. Thanks for taking the time to, to speak with us. Happy to do it. Ravi, can we talk with you for a few moments about Christianity in a post-9-11 world? That's been our theme here for a while on the broadcast as we think about this significant marker in recent history, really, September 11th. Uh, what are some of your beginning thoughts about that? It's, uh, it's one of those um, uh, hinges of history, I think, for America. We will never be able to live as if it never happened. It was a mark that is left upon, indelibly left upon our consciences, those of us who were um, witnesses to it, whether from near or afar. Um, you know, Michael, the story that immediately comes to my mind is one of our close friends in the ministry who supported this ministry for years. She lives in New, New Jersey, she and her husband, young couple. And the day it happened, I'll never forget the tragedy of the letter that came from her, her husband, a young businessman, watching these towers collapse, watching the cloud envelop the city, literally went into his car and ended his life. Oh, my goodness. Yep. It was one of the most dramatic representations of, uh, I think, the, the the fringe of living in on in total despair. So so much has really happened, and uh, America has sort of uh, unalterably changed. Hmm. So he, he that was the only response that he could uh, could make to witnessing that tragedy. You know, isn't that something? Um, uh, you know, it's one thing if you uh, if you see your team losing a game and you can't handle that, say, oh boy, but you say there's going to be another day, another match or something like that. I guess to him, it just looked like this was something so horrific Mm. that uh, he wondered whether there was more and more to come. And uh, one has to wonder if there were deeper issues going on in his life at that time. But for him, that was it. Uh, At large, I think Uh. it has planted fear in the hearts of many people. We in America, especially North America, live so comfortably and our uh, our threats have been so few. Yeah. Or, uh, tragedies have always been a distance away. So something like this has, has made a huge difference in the way we look at our own futures and the nation's future. I think the average person today uh, will not consider it too far-fetched to think um, cataclysmic events can happen in their right. lifetime. Well, Ravi, for, uh, for us, 9-11... For us in America, that was really an introduction uh, to what has been happening in the rest of the world, in the Middle East, in Israel, and 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 elsewhere. So we, it was it was a reason for us to wake up. Well, that is very well put. Uh, as I travel around, Michael, that's really what I see. We see huge uh, issues uh, happening all over the globe of uh, uh, insecurity, uh, the upending of regimes, the. Uh, uh, the, the loss of life in some terrible event on the streets and so on. This came right so close to home and in the heart of our commercial capital, as it were, I think was, was rather nerve-wracking. Mm-hmm. Ravi, Paul describes us as having a treasure in our earthen vessels. How are we doing at sharing that treasure in a post-9-11 world? I think that is the heart of the question. How has the Church reacted overall, and how are we doing as as a result of it? The first thing I think it awakened us to, Michael, was the fact that we all of a sudden became aware of the 
passionate beliefs of people, but we just couldn't quite figure out uh, how it moved in, in, in the direction of such destruction and so on. So now we sort of start to respond by trying to understand how they how the how people think what their religious worldview is yeah. it's been a good move in that direction mm-hmm. but we still do not recognize i think the anguish and the context within which these worldviews were framed it's a little bit like going into russia or china and talking to a christian you know and simplistically dismissing well you know we all have to suffer we all have to endure and so on sure. they will sort of look at you and say do you really understand what we've suffered for for generations so the church's reaction has been a knee jerk reaction we want to understand but i don't think we're willing to pay the price of reading and uh, and hearing firsthand we want it in a sound bite fashion well i can remember the first time i heard the quote um from from one of the uh, terrorist leaders, we we believe in death, and you and you believe in life. And where do you even start to uh, address that sort of a mindset as Michael, a believer? Michael, I heard a fascinating uh, description, very much like what you mentioned. I was talking to a convert from Islam. He was a former terrorist, and he he put it in these words to me. I've never forgotten it. In fact, used it many times. He said, "For the average Christian." draw a circle, that represents his or her life. If you put a dot inside that circle, that represents his or her faith. He said for the Muslim, it's the reverse, that the circle represents his or her faith, and the dot represents the life. Hmm. In other words, he said they're willing to give up the life because the faith is the all-encompassing thing. Hmm. For the Christian, we see our faith sort of as an aspect of our lives. Mm -hmm. And so you've put it in, in a completely different metaphor, so if the dot is all that uh, life is about, it is dispensable for them. I think it's a fallacious and, uh, and a rather tendentious way of, dis- of showing the difference, but the point is still well taken. We too as believers should see our faith as inextricably bound to our, to our lives themselves. The two should be inseparable. Mm-hmm. Do you see signs of hope? I'm thinking especially, Ravi, of of the younger generation, the 20-somethings who are heading out into a world that is far different than the world we began our life in. Uh, I see hope, and uh, I see it in a measured way, Michael. And first of all, you know, let me say what you do for people like that uh, and uh, that generation. Your music, you know, the old adage holds true, "Let let me write the songs of a nation. I don't care who writes its laws. I think the profundity of your text and so on, that pulls together the imagination and the commitment. So I just encourage you to keep doing it. Thank you. In our ministry, we make an effort in apologetics and so on, how to present a defense of the faith. I believe we have undervalued this generation. Many of the young men and women I meet are willing to pay whatever price is demanded of them. They just want to be taught. They just want to be Mm. equipped. They just want to learn how to worship. That's one side of it. But the other reason for hope that I see, Michael, and I spend a lot of time in the Middle East. Just a few weeks before talking to you now, I was in Syria and Jordan and Lebanon. You'd be amazed at what you're seeing happening in those parts of the world. In Egypt, it is not at all uncommon for two imams to bump into each other in church on a Sunday morning and be shocked to see the other person there and then immediately wonder if the other person is going to go and squeal on him really? because of what he saw there. And they're turning to Christ in large numbers in wow. some of those countries. We need to pray for the churches and the believers that they can disciple these young men and women. There's a lot happening in many of the uh, so-called Islamic countries. Do you see that young people are less prone to pulling back in the face of strong religious opinions around the world and more willing uh, Christian young people in getting out there and, and sharing what they know? I think the latter. I think they are more willing. They just want to be informed and well-equipped. If you go to China today, you'll just see so many from the western part of the world. And then you see the Chinese young men and women. I mean, you go into an average university campus here in the United States, whether it's Columbia or Princeton or um, Harvard or um, any of the major Ivy League schools. You go and speak there and uh, present a defense of the Christian faith. They are filling the audience auditoriums, and they are deeply committed in their faith. So both on this side of the world and the other side of the world, the young adults 
are showing a great deal of promise. It's unmistakable, isn't it, that the center of Christianity is changing, and that's not a bad thing. Yes, it is. I think the roles, the role shift is different. Um, America still plays a tremendously leading role in the world of uh, technology, and I think in the distributive power that, uh, the, that this country lends itself to, and in the way we have been blessed economically, the equipping and the education and the financial empowering is still very much our responsibility. But in terms of the numbers and the, uh, the, uh, the acceptability of young people, yes, it has shifted. Mm. The Asian young person today, be he or she from India or from the Middle East or from China or uh, that part of the globe, we are seeing a tremendous uh, move of young people. In fact, uh, some of you may have heard of the project with uh, the Chinese young men and women preparing to go out in large numbers in the Middle East. I think the less publicity to it, the better, but the uh, yes. impact of it is going to be huge. Yeah, I've talked to Chinese underground mm-hmm. pastors about that very thing, and know exactly. it's real. Yeah. Back to Jerusalem yeah. movement. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Well, Ravi, uh, as, as we let you go, how can we be praying for you? Because uh, I, I believe your ministry has a lot to do with, with informing and helping these young people uh, to become aware and mobilized for the gospel. How can we pray for you? Well, I appreciate that, Michael. Most important, I always ask prayer for my family. You know, even though our children are grown, as I travel around, uh, my wife and children have to pay such a heavy price sometimes. Always, for the listener, I just say, please pray for them, that God will uh, keep them in a close walk with them and my own. Number two, that God will give us wisdom to prioritize because the opportunities are many. The wisdom is important as to where the Macedonian calls are coming to us. That would be invaluable, that God would lead us and that we would respond to his nod. As he calls us, as the Grand Weaver pulls some threads, we want to make sure we are responding to his nod. Ravi, thank you for giving us some of your time. Uh, have a good God bless week. you too, Michael and Wayne and your whole team. They're always good to be with you, man. Thank you. Well, we need to pause the session right here, but there is much more on the way. We're always glad to read your reactions to this program. You can send your comments or questions to us through our website. Go to michaelcard.com and scroll down to find contact. We look forward to reading what you post to michaelcard.com. And you can extend the impact of the teaching you've heard from Michael. Check out his insights through his weekly blog, his books, his music, and Bible conferences. Explore all that's waiting for you at michaelcard.com. Well, coming up, more music and conversation in just a moment here in the studio with Michael Card. Join us for a classic edition of In the Studio with Michael Card. We'll open up the program archives and present a session recorded at the Mole End Studio. The Bible teaching, guest conversations, and studio music performances are some of the most inspiring times when we gathered in Franklin, Tennessee. The instruments are tuned, the Bible is open, so make sure you join us. Look for the post and invite other like minds to hear the podcast. All the details at michaelcard.com. Remember Lyle Dorsett being our guest years gone by? Yep, and at one point I know he was working, he finished this book, he was working on a book on chaplains, Uh and he and I got into this long discussion after we recorded. My my grandfather was a chaplain in World War I, and I ended up sending a a picture of my grandfather, and we had this discussion, and really, I think, started a a good friendship. He's a remarkable, he's a remarkable scholar. Yeah, I always appreciated his biography of D.L. Moody. Yeah. Uh, That was, he's written several biographies, but that's one good one. So we'll talk with him coming up in just a moment. I'm looking forward to that. To begin our program today, after you sing a song for FFB. Yeah. Explain this. Well, the FFB is Frederick Fernando Brown, who is my grandfather, who was the guy, who was the the chaplain in World War I. And he was uh, a remarkable person, my grandfather. I, I never knew him. Uh, he died when I was a year or two old. And uh, I've always regretted that because he was a pastor. He was a remarkable uh, person who was um, – he, he integrated his church in 1930. Mm. Um, and it was a Southern in Baptist South, church. Yeah, yeah he, was, he, he was just a courageous, remarkable man and very loving man. And this song is about, um, I, had, I had a dream about him at one point. I was 14, and I would sensed God's call to be a Bible teacher. And, um, and I just so, I guess in my mind, I played it over so, so much, I wanted him to know somehow. And I had this dream. 
And uh, uh, in the dream, he just, we didn't talk or anything. He just hugged me. That's all it was. And, and that's what the, the song came from, that, that, that dream. Oh, such a tender yeah. song for FFB. Just a simple preacher from the Carolina hills Born in just the perfect place and time A gentle, loving mountain man With warm and sparkling eyes And a face that wrinkled from a constant smile In you I learned the kind of faith That looks up to the mountains In you I saw just what I'd like to be Oh, Granddad, I wish you could be here to tell me what to do Cause I first saw the light of Christ through you And it must have been a special love that filled your shepherd's heart That made you care so deeply for your flock Cause I hear tell on winter days you'd always give your coat away Simply cause you thought they needed more From you I learned the kind of faith That looks up to the mountains In you I saw just what I'd like to be Oh granddad I wish you could be here To tell me what to do Cause I first saw the light of Christ through you Even though we never got to know each other well I thank the Lord for that one special night When somewhere between the earth and sky We silently met eye to eye And I got the hug I'd needed for so long From you I learned the kind of faith That looks up to the mountains In you I saw just what I'd like to be Oh, Granddad, I wish you could be here to tell me what to do Cause I first saw the light of Christ through you Oh, Granddad, I wish you could be here to tell me what to do Cause I first saw the light of Christ through you And that Granddad is the same man that you just showed me his photo I did. He was a chaplain in World War One. Hmm. Yeah, Fred Brown. Ah, what a heritage. Yes. Mm-hmm. That's the voice of Dr. Lyle Dorset, who is with us today. It's been a long time since we've had this man on this program, Michael. Yeah, it's so great to have you back, Lyle. Thanks for joining us. Uh, you're welcome. Good to be yeah. with you guys. Yeah. understand you're retired now. I have. I've passed the torch at my uh, church and, and the Divinity School where I've been mm-hmm. teaching. Mm-hmm. Well, this is Memorial Day time, and you wrote the book Serving God and Country. We want to talk to you about that. Okay. Michael? Well, in this time of year, we're, we're I mean, we should, we should be honoring them 365 days a year, True. but we're honoring the men and women who, uh, who serve the country. I think it's a very Christ-like thing to risk your life so that other people can be free, people mm-hmm. that you don't even know. Particularly those who gave their lives, and that's what Memorial Day is all about, right? Yeah. But let's talk about the chaplaincy. Well, I, one of the things that uh, strikes me is Chaplain Major General William Arnold, who was a World War II chaplain and stayed in and became chief of chaplains, he said this. He said, battles are won by military power, but wars are won by spiritual power. Wow. wow. That's great, isn't it? Wow. And the chaplains are the ones who rally and focus that, that, uh, that power, huh? That's indeed so. Yeah. I, General Vandergrift, who led the Marines on Guadalcanal in their first major island invasion and then <clears throat> ended up being the Commandant of the Marine Corps by the time of the end of the war, Vandergrift in January 1946 spoke in Washington, D.C., and he said this. He said, uh, he said, you know, the casualties that we experienced and suffered from Guadalcanal all the way through Okinawa. And he said, I can only speak for the Marine Corps. He said, I can't speak for other branches. But he said, I can tell you the enormously high casualties we experienced from 1942 through 45 
on those islands could never have been sustained without two groups of men. He said, first of all, the corpsmen, the, the Navy mm-hmm. corpsmen. These yeah. were their medics. And he said, secondly, the chaplains. Mm-hmm. He said, because war is so impersonal. But he said, the corpsmen and the chaplains let those combatants know that they were not alone and mm-hmm. they were important as a person. Wow. And he said, wherever the battle was raging, you'd find our corpsman and our chaplain right in the midst of it with these guys. Mm-hmm. Well, just before we began recording, you were telling us a story of a man, I don't think he was a chaplain even, was he, who opened the scriptures before going into battle? Yes, yes. He was a man from Alabama, and he uh, he was from a small town in Alabama, and he said that uh, on December 7th, obviously they'd gone home from church and discovered we were at war. The next Sunday, he goes back to his church, and he said, perhaps you know that pastors cannot be drafted. Hmm. He said, but I've spent all week in prayer, and the Lord will not allow me to hide behind my pulpit. So tomorrow I'm going to Birmingham and join the Marines, Mm. which he did. And long story short, he was uh, loved by the men in the squad. He became a squad leader. He was a sergeant. And they said that every time that they were up on the front lines fighting, when they would fall back for just some rest and to get some more water and get rest before they go back to the front. He'd gather the guys around and pull out his pocket New Testament that he had inside his dungaree jacket and read verses of Scripture quoting Jesus and said, Men, I want you to know, as hellish as this is, as we go back to the front in a few minutes, we're not going alone. Jesus Christ will be with us. And The testimony of men that fought with him was that this guy was incredibly brave, and he kept their morale up. Mm. Alas, he was killed uh, on on Iwo Jima just six days after he was put in for the Medal of Honor. Mm. And you you said you have his Purple Heart? I have his name Purple Heart in my museum. I have a museum of World War II artifacts. Tell me more about why you did that. Why a museum? Well— I have a museum uh, because, and I've always brought my students to our home. My wife has always fed them tea and coffee and cookies, and I'd bring them and give them a tour of my museum. It's about 800 square feet, and I've I've done this with my students. I've had high school teachers that have brought their classes. I want the next generation to understand that freedom is not free. It's mm. costly. Yeah that there were 12.5 million men and women in uniform in World War II who served so that we can be free today. And mm-hmm. the Bible, t- and this gives me an opportunity to witness as well, because I said the Bible tells us that to whom much is given, much is required. Right. We have been given freedom. Mm-hmm. And what a shame that we sometimes mm-hmm. mock it, yeah. burn the flags, have disdain for various things, but we're free because of the sacrifice of people, the men and women who gave the minimum some of the best years of their lives, and many of them gave their lives. Mm. I have a small box of memorabilia from my dad's uh, time in World War II. He was on Okinawa. Mm. And and I keep it um, thinking that someday when my grandson is old enough, I want to sit down with him and open up that box and share what's in it and why it's in it. That's that's the same thing you're talking about, isn't it? Exactly. Exactly. Mm. And I'm glad you're preserving those things because I, a lot of things in my collection have come from people who say, you know, I don't know what to do with all this junk. <laughs> do you, are you interested in it? Mm. Well, I always am. I always, these are national treasures. I preserve yeah. them. I have dad's discharge paper and I, I look at it and I think what he must have felt the day he was handed that piece of paper after the war, you know. Yes. To yes. finally be free. Mm. But let's get back to the chaplains. These are heroes. Yes, indeed. There, it's uh, in World War II. There were, and just to give you an example of things, there were eight million three, approximately eight million three hundred thousand men and women in the army, and three million three hundred thousand in the navy, and uh, chaplains. There was a hard time getting enough chaplains to serve that many people. The Army had just under 9,000 chaplains in World War II, and the Navy had 
about 2,700. And uh, the Navy, of course, Navy chaplains rotated every year. They might be one year with the Marines and next year on a ship, the next year at a naval station. In the Army, a chaplain, like I have students right now, former students who are military chaplains, active duty. If they're assigned to the 82nd Airborne Division, they stay with them for the duration. Mm -hmm. They never move. It's a totally different philosophy. So in your book, do you tell the stories of these chaplains, individuals? I do. I have a lot of, you know, I have overarching themes of things that I see, uh, but I also have a lot of cameo portraits of different chaplains and things that they did. Um, These guys are incredibly heroic. I, I look, as I've gone through, by the way, the National Archives has something called Record Group uh, 247, and every chaplain in the U.S. military had to, in the U.S. Army, had to turn in a monthly report. Mm. And uh, so there's all this rich data, so wow. I can get a chaplain, find his name, where he went to school, where he was trained in seminary, and so forth, what's his denomination. And then I can see monthly what he was doing with the troops. Wow. And sometimes they'd turn in their monthly report, I'd find one, and there'd just be scrawl across it. We're in the midst of combat. I don't have time to fill this garbage wow. out. <laughs> now, <laughs> now, turn in, it in. in general, are the chaplains uh, not armed? No, they're not armed. They were not allowed to bear arms. Wow. But there's an interesting story. There was a a chaplain, a Navy chaplain, who was with the Marines, and when these bonsai attacks would come, and they'd be preparing for them because the, they knew the Marines would know the Japanese were coming, mm-hmm. this one chaplain would hunker down with the guys. If a guy at one of the guns was killed, he'd take over. Mm-hmm. And. Uh, I found a photograph of him standing next to a tank, leaning against it, and you could see the forty-five pistol, <laughs> the sling, <laughs> inside his jacket. And three different times he lost his cool and picked up firearms and, and joined the Marines and shooting at the Japanese. Wow. And uh, they finally, uh, his commander said, you know, you're not allowed to do this. You're not allowed to even handle these firearms. And he did it once. He did it twice. They forgave him the third time. They said, look, we're not going to get you kicked out of the military, but we're sending you to the Hawaiian Islands because we don't think you'll have any bonsai attacks to have to join <laughs> nobody, with. Nobody to shoot there. <laughs> huh. The men loved him, by the way. They thought he was the greatest. Yeah, yeah. So what are the qualities of these men, spiritually speaking? Well, they vary, uh, but the good chaplains were men who loved God and loved these combatants, saw them as their parishioners. They saw them as their their flock that they needed to care for, and they cared about them personally. And uh, they were the ones who often wrote letters to family when somebody was killed or badly wounded. Yeah, it, it, I'm, I'm guessing that was probably a, a major part of their work, uh, the letter home. It was. Yeah. It was. And here's an interesting thing. I interviewed, I couldn't find many chaplains because these guys were so much older than the typical combatant. They would have at least seven or eight years of education beyond high school. Mm-hmm. So I couldn't find a lot of chaplains to interview, but I interviewed a lot of veterans from World War II and said, do you have any memories, recollections of chaplains? Not many of them said, oh yes, but some did. And I couldn't find a one that could remember the name of the chaplain, oh. but they would remember how they were blessed by the guy. Wow. Uh, if you got time, I'll give you one little interesting portrait. Absolutely. Please. I'd love to yeah. hear it. Please. Yeah. Well, anyway, there was a man, and I did get to interview him, uh, Sergeant Bob Slaughter. He's now crossed over, and he's in heaven, but he was with the 29th Infantry Division. And the 29th invaded France on D-Day, so he was in a, one of the first waves of invaders, fought all the way up, and a, a few days later, they're a little farther into France, and he said they'd come to this one town, and the Germans had these 88-millimeter cannons, and they're blasting them as they're coming up. And he said, we, he said a buddy of mine and I, we rapidly uh, dug a little foxhole and jumped in it. He said the two of us jumped down in this foxhole. He said, no sooner had we jumped in than a third uninvited guest <laughs> leaps in on top of us. And he said, I look up, and he, on, his, on his helmet is a white cross, and he's a chaplain. Uh. And he said, the chaplain said, men, sorry to bother you, but I'm looking for a Sergeant Bob Slaughter. 
and he said, I know this is a big company you're in, and the guys are scattered around, but uh, I'm trying to find him. And Slaughter said, wow. this is a long arm of coincidence. <laughs> uh, I'm Bob Slaughter. And he said, well, I'm sorry to bear you bad news. Uh, your father died in, in the oh. town in Virginia where they lived. And your mother went to the pastor of the church and asked him if he could get the word to the army and get you out and bring you home uh, on on leave. And uh, he said, as you can see, you're rather busy around here. We're not <laughs> going to be able to get you out. But I wanted to bring the word to you that your father died and your mother's fine. Now, that's phenomenal. Oh, unbelievable. Slaughter told me, he said, I knew God was with me. And I thank him for that chaplain who uh, who helped me. Those are the wow. kinds of things that uh, you find stories like that, and you thank God for these people. Yeah. Hmm. I, I had another interesting story, if you have time yes. for it. These um, are great. Keep yes. going. <laughs> yeah, I had a man that I met here in Birmingham, uh, Henry Cobb. And Henry Cobb was a uh, young lieutenant in World War II, and he told me that I asked him if he had any recollections of chaplains. He said, not by name, but he said, I do have one unforgettable story. He said, uh, and Henry was in a church I was going to, which was Anglican Church. It was similar to the Episcopal Church. and He'd been raised in the Episcopal Church. And he said, because I'm an Episcopalian, he said, Holy Communion was always important to me. And he said, before I'd go up on the front and take my platoon, he said, I'd always try to find a chaplain and get communion. Mm -hmm. And he said, this one morning, and it was in December of 1944, and they were near the Hurtgren Forest where the Battle of the Bulge was raging. He said, the chaplain there was a uh, Roman Catholic priest, and he said... uh, he said Catholics typically don't give communion to anybody but other Catholics, but he said uh, he they don't card you in the middle of a war. He said, <laughs> I went up to him and, and got received the Eucharist. And he said, uh, so I went on in and went in with my platoon. He said, I was wounded. I had a flesh wound on my thigh, and I came off the front and was coming out just to get it taped up so I could get back to my men and not be losing a lot of blood. And he said, I look, and in front of me, kind of bent low was this chaplain that had given me communion a half hour or so before. And he said he had something in each hand. I don't know what it was. He said it might have been probably a communion kit or something in one hand. He said, I don't know. And he was crouching and running right into the forest. And I said, Chappie, stop. You can't go in there. Men are dying all over that place. And he said, then that's precisely why I need to be there. And he said he just charged on in. He said, I never knew his name, never saw him again, don't know what happened to him. I'm so glad you're preserving these stories. I will tell you men this, next to the Army Air Corps, the Army Air Corps had the highest per capita casualty rate in the U.S. Army. Hmm. Second to the Army Air Corps was the Chaplain Corps. Wow. Wow. Stunning. Yeah. Well, again, Dr. Lyle Dorsett has been with us. Our time has gone so quickly here. Serving God and Country is the book. Michael's already ordered a copy of the book. I just ordered a a copy for a friend who's a chaplain in Anchorage, Alaska, who I'm going to see next week. So I'm going to send send him your book, and I'm going to send him your greetings, Dr. Dorsett. You do that. Tell him we're grateful for his service. Yes. Thank you, sir. Thanks for preserving these stories for us. Well, I enjoyed I enjoyed talking about it. These guys are still my heroes. I'll be 81 in April, and I was a little boy during World War II, and my uncle was in the war. And I, these guys were all my heroes. Amen. And uh, I started collecting World War II memorabilia when my uncle came home in early 1946. Wow. Well. So, You've you've really. So anyway, uh, Mike, keep collecting that stuff. Hold on to things. <laughs> uh, I will do that, Doctor uh-huh. Dorset. And thank you so much for giving us some of your time. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. God yeah. bless you both. God bless thank you. you. Let's listen to Michael sing appropriately. I will bring you home. Though you are homeless, though you're alone, I will be your home. Whatever's the matter, whatever's been done, I will be your home. I will be your home, 
this fearful and fallen place I will be your home When time reaches fullness When I move my hand I will bring you home Home to your own place In a beautiful land I will bring you home I will bring you home I will bring you home From this fearful and fallen This Memorial Day, as as we think about the men and women who've given everything, mm-hmm. given up their homes, yeah. given the up their full families, measure of devotion, yeah, so that we could be free. Um, I, that song kind of has a, a different resonance when you think about the fact that the promise of God is, "I'm going to bring you home." And uh, for those of you know those who who belonged to Jesus, He had a pl- place all prepared for them. But I also want to think too of uh, the men and women who are serving right now. And how they have given up their homes. And if you're listening, uh, please hear that we, we, we are honored by you. And we, uh, we thank you for your service to our country. And we want you to hear, too, that promise that God will eventually bring you home. But thank you for serving our country. Yes, thank you, Michael. Well, no matter how you hear this podcast, we hope you'll take time to explore more of what we have available for you online when you visit michaelcard.com. And we hope you'll join us next week as we open the archives and present a classic broadcast recorded at the Mole Inn Studio. If you need to listen to this program again or have missed a recent program, just look for past sessions online. Come explore all that's waiting for you at michaelcard.com. You can access Michael's weekly blog posts, learn more about his conference ministry, and get the links for subscribing to this podcast in iTunes or Google Play at michaelcard.com. Now for all of us on the team, Ron Davis, Lauren Kosky, Ashley Smith, Lance Mansfield, Jeff Jones, and our producer, Joe Carlson, I'm Wayne Shepard. Thanks for listening to In the Studio with Michael Card.